From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is First Person. This week, uprising in Lebanon. Lebanon has been rocked over the last two weeks by some of the largest street protests in the country's modern history. They were touched off earlier this month by a government proposal to tax the free phone service WhatsApp. These demonstrations began last night after the announcement of that WhatsApp tax that was announced, which would have imposed 20 cents for each WhatsApp phone call. The government government quickly backed away from the tax, but the protests have morphed and continued, mainly over economic conditions in the country and government corruption. Hundreds of thousands have taken to the streets, many of them demanding new political leadership. Maha Yaya is the director of the Carnegie Middle East Center based in Beirut. She spent the last few weeks navigating the street protests and considering what they mean for Lebanon's future. She's our guest today. Hi, Maha. It's Sarah. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm okay. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. I'd really like to start with how the protests started. Uh, These protests didn't come out of the blue, but they've actually been a build-up, partly as a result of a large number of grievances that the Lebanese have. Um, Over the past few years, they've seen their standards of living go down and an increasing mismanagement of state resources that also have a direct impact on their daily lives. If you recall, in 2015, there was the You Stink movement, which had to do with the garbage crisis. Garbage was piling up in the streets of the country for months on end, partly because the political leadership could not agree on uh, what mechanisms to use for garbage disposal. And there were obviously business deals involved in this that had to do with this political leadership. In the same vein, They're seeing their own standards of living go down. For example, this year, the uh, Ministry of Education announced that they had seen an 18% increase in enrollment in public schools. It's an indication that many Lebanese families that normally prefer private schools for their kids can no longer afford to send their children to private schools. This is also coupled with concern that there might be a devaluation of the Lebanese pound, coupled with anxiety over a potential economic collapse. The country's been downgraded by rating agencies. Uh, If there is a devaluation of the Lebanese pound, we may end up in a situation where people see their savings disappear, their pensions disappear, and they can't really even guarantee basic minimum standards for their children. Um, The quality of service provision also has gone down considerably over the past few years. This includes, of course, education and health services. So this is a broad picture of the larger context of how these demonstrations have emerged. Can you tell me what it feels like then, I mean, in the run-up to these protests, with this sense of economic anxiety, and obviously there's this concern over currency devaluation, but what does it mean in day-to-day conversation? How do people talk to each other? And when you're talking about services, it's it's garbage, but it's also electricity. It's really quite basic, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, for the people's daily lives here, what it's meant is um, there's been a concern by the banks that there would be a run on money. Uh, 
So we've seen banks increase their tariffs and their fees. Um, if you have deposits in dollar amounts, if you want to withdraw uh, your deposits, your, I mean your own money, uh, you pay a fee even just to withdraw if it's beyond a certain level. And these fees have been increasing. The sense that there's been capital flight from the country and it's apparent in central bank data. Um, you hear conversations between people asking as to whether, you know, is it better to keep their money at home? We're, we're down to that level rather than put them in the bank. Concerned that we could get a haircut scenario similar to the one that was implemented in Cyprus or in Greece where people lost a certain amount of their deposits in banks and of their savings. So these are the kind of daily concerns and anxieties. This, of course, is coupled with, uh, as you mentioned, electricity cuts. I mean, 20 years after the end of the Civil War, we still don't have electricity. There are frequent cuts uh, during the day. People have to hook up to private generators um, just addressing the problem with the electricity would address almost one-third of the budget deficit. It's costing us an enormous amount of money with very little return uh, as a country. And I just wanted to confirm, when you say keep your money at home, you literally mean putting physical dollars or pounds in this case under your bed or in your closet as opposed to in a bank under your mattress. You put your money under your mattress and you keep it at home. And there are many people who've done that. And I've heard story upon story of people who've said, you know, that's it. We, we need to keep some money at home. And it's not limited to uh, middle income or upper income. Most of the upper income have already, you know, transferred their money outside of Lebanon. There was a massive capital flight outside the country a, a while back. So, Take us back to the week of October 17th, and there was a tax on WhatsApp that was proposed, and that was the trigger? That was the trigger. It's not so much the WhatsApp, but just the general environment or attitude towards Lebanese citizens. The idea that there was a discussion on the budget in 2019. The 2019 budget was released maybe a, few, a couple of months ago. There's very little, despite all the talk about economic and structural reform, addressing the, you know, the loopholes within the budget, trying to address the budget deficit by closing all the, uh, the gaps in the budget, by stemming corruption, by consolidating institutions that really are, have become almost irrelevant. These were created in the aftermath of the Civil War when it ended in 1990 to address issues directly related to the Civil War. There was one other piece around the lack of services or the kind of inconsistency in services, which is around the same time as the WhatsApp tax, there were forest fires that weren't successfully fought. How did that connect? Again, it's the general context of the buildup. So on the one hand, you're talking about addressing a budget, a massive budget deficit, not by looking at what are the structural fee reforms that need to be done, but looking to close that deficit by taxing people, by reducing the salaries of retired army personnel or civil servants. And then at the same time, you have massive fires. And it turns out that the two helicopters that were bought for many millions of dollars could not be used because they hadn't been maintained in the last few years. 
So if that's not a scandal, I don't know what is. We ended up having to use, uh, rely on uh, the help of Cyprus and other countries to put out massive fires where many people lost their homes. So I think it's the general atmosphere of complete and utter incompetence and political and economic mismanagement of the country, coupled with increasingly get more money out of uh, people, down to the point where even WhatsApp, which is free to everyone around the world, is now going to be taxed in Lebanon. At least that's what people thought. So just tell me what the streets felt like. What did it feel like to walk down the street in Beirut or even Tripoli, where people also took the streets? The energy is amazing. I mean, it brought back kind of the 2005 feel. The difference the, when, when people took to the streets to demand the ouster of the Syrians who had been in Lebanon for 30 years. This, if you recall, was in the aftermath of the assassination of Prime Minister Hariri, the father of the current Prime Minister. The big difference is, A, these demonstrations are completely decentralized. So whereas in 2005, everybody came to Beirut, These are completely decentralized. They're very spontaneous. Everybody is out on the streets from Tripoli all the way in the north to villages that actually are not getting coverage in Akkar, in the Bika, in the south. What's also very unique about them is this is the first time where you see people coming out and criticizing their own sectarian leaders. It's very rare to hear Shiites openly criticizing their political slash sectarian leaders, the same for Christians, the same for Sunnis. Across the board, criticism of this leadership is coming from within their sectarian communities, and they're very adamant about it. So it kind of put the political leadership in a tight spot because they can't say we're being attacked, this is against us, this is a conspiracy, because It's actually not. It's coming from within your own community. And there's also been this surge in national identity, a sense of national pride, a sense of oneness, um, that we're all in this boat together, that this political sectarian system has not benefited one community over the other. Actually, it's impacted us all negatively. Those that have benefited are the political sectarian leaders, but everybody else is suffering. So when protesters got beaten up in Nabatiye in the south, which is predominantly Shia, protesters in Tripoli, which is predominantly Sunni, held a minute of silence and then started chanting, Nabatiye, we're with you to the death. This is simply unheard of. Um, today, there were calls for protesters from around Lebanon to go and protest in Nabatiye and Tyr, where protesters have been roughed up. So there is a sense of solidarity and sense of oneness that is really across the board from north to south and, you know, from east to west. And when you say oneness, you're saying a sense of Lebanese identity. For example, we're seeing Lebanese flags. How is that different comparing it to the sectarian division that has plagued Lebanon for decades? Well, the fact that you only see Lebanese flag tells you that people have shed or are at least at this moment want to shed completely any political sectarian affiliation that they have or may have had in the past. So um, in previous demonstrations, you would see a sea of Lebanese flags, but you would also see the flags of all the Lebanese political parties. And this one, there's been an adamant uh, refusal to have uh, the flag of any political party. The only flag that we've seen in one of the demonstrations in Beirut is the flag of the Lebanese army. Other than that, uh, there hasn't been anything else. 
Do you feel like this is youth oriented? Is it everyone? Who's there? Everyone is there. There is definitely a new generation of protesters. You see them when you walk around, you see them when you watch TV, when you you know, follow them on social media. They're very much there. And this is a generation that has grown up in the era of the Arab uprisings. So they saw Tunisia in 2011 and everything else that followed. They also came to political maturity in the era of the 2015 uh, You Stink movement and demonstrations at that time. As I said, there's been a real buildup against this uh, current political class, but also the way of managing this country. This new generation is post-ideological. They really don't care about ideologies. What they care about is they want, they're demanding a civic state. And they want a country where they're treated as equal citizens and not as members of one community or the other. The WhatsApp tax was rescinded or the idea was rolled back, wasn't it? Oh, it was rescinded very quickly. And what's ridiculous is I don't think they'd even read the terms of contract with WhatsApp, which prohibits anybody from making money from the service. So the protests around the WhatsApp tax were really just a trigger, but the protests themselves are about everything else. Yeah, yeah, no, no. It was the straw that broke the camel's back, honestly. It was just a trigger and it's ballooned since then. And uh, the problem is also is that the reaction of the government seems to be... uh, I mean, it's, it's reminiscent to me of what we saw in Egypt, where every concession that was made, it was just made too late. And this is what we're seeing now. In the economic reform paper that was put together by the, that was put forward by the prime minister, it has some very important uh, suggestions. The problem is people don't understand, don't trust that it will be implemented, can't see how it's going to be implemented in this time frame, and simply don't, uh, they have no faith in the current system. So one major thing we haven't touched on at all are the 1.5 million people who came across the border from Syria, the refugee crisis. How have the refugees changed the political climate and and actually the services themselves? Um, Interestingly, the refugees have figured very positively in the demonstrations in the sense that there's been a lot of solidarity with the Syrian uprising. You will hear songs that are adapted from songs that became very popular during the Syrian uprising that were used in Lebanon. The refugees themselves have not figured in any big way except to say refugees are welcome. But in the build-up to the demonstrations, the refugees were being used over and over again, particularly by the Minister of Foreign Affairs, who, as you know, has been vilified in the last uh, eight days uh, by protesters uh, with the different chants that have been, you know, uh, (laughs) I'm sure you've heard them. Can you tell us what one of those chants might be? Well, I might offend your readers, (laughs) your listeners, sorry. (laughs) I might offend your listeners. There's been a constant one refrain that's been used over and over again, not just in Lebanon, but even in diaspora communities. I mean, I'm, I'm actually shocked and surprised. Uh, I, didn't, I, I don't think anybody realized how badly he rubbed people. Um, basically, the chant is Hila, 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 Ho, and then they, they curse the foreign minister. And then they talk about his mother. So, Okay. Uh, we mentioned 2011 and the Arab Spring and that this generation saw that. Although, of course, now... We're a number of years on from that. So some of the youngest people obviously were quite young during Arab Spring. But those protests largely passed Lebanon by. 
How do these compare to the Arab Spring? There were some protests at the time in 2011, and then there was another one in 2013, and then another one in 2015. 2015 was the Youth Think movement. We always tend to think we're always taken by surprise when a protest happens. It doesn't happen overnight. Again, it's something that has been building up for quite some time. For the last eight, nine years across the region, people have been told, look what happens when you, you know, when you go out and demand uh, your freedoms, you could end up in a completely chaotic situation like Syria, civil war, hundreds of thousands dead. And, you know, the story, Syria really has been the boogeyman, if you want. So Sudan and Algeria came and it was the best kind of response to that scenario. And I think Lebanon is also another response to that scenario. I think what has taken, again, everybody by surprise, the reason why many people didn't think it could happen in Lebanon is because this country is made up of 18 religious sects, because its political system is based on power sharing between these different sects, because the way the country is governed, these religious last political leaders almost have, I don't want to say complete, but have a lot of control over people's lives in terms of access to services, even state services. Because of all of that, and because the Lebanese have been consistently re-electing them, the sense was the Lebanese just will never be able to step out of their communal identities and ask for a civic state. And I don't think people realized how deep the sense of injury was, how deep the frustration, and how profound the understanding that, in fact, this has not brought anybody any good. In fact, it's just made our lot much worse. You know, we've talked about people taking their money and putting it under their mattresses, uh, concern about putting children into public school rather than private, even for classes that typically do so. Is there a sense among young people and then among parents of young children that there isn't clarity on what the future looks like if you grow up in Lebanon? Oh, you hear when you speak to young adults, university students, it's the thing you hear most consistently. We're either going into university and we don't know whether we'll be able to get jobs, or we are in university and we don't know what to do once we graduate because we're not sure we're going to get jobs. So the sense that they're facing a very dark future is incredibly palpable for this younger generation. People get jobs not because they've got the skills or they deserve it. It's more because who they know. So the sense that the deck is stacked against almost everyone, this is very, very disturbing. The other thing you keep hearing on the streets is we don't want to have to emigrate. For many young graduates, the only way they can get a job is if they leave and go to some other part of the world that will take them. And many of them are saying, we don't want to have to emigrate. We want to be able to find jobs and continue living in our homes uh, here. And that's already divided families, hasn't it, where you have some young people leaving? Yeah, historically, Lebanon is, I think there are more Lebanese outside of Lebanon than there are in Lebanon. The Lebanese diaspora is around the world. Uh, This is from the turn of the 20th century. My own grandfather emigrated uh, when he was a kid. So every single almost Lebanese family has someone in the family that's gone abroad uh, to Africa, to America, to South America, to Europe. They're just all over. But the bottom line is today, as things stand, particularly in a, in a world where the 
possibility of moving and going to other places and getting jobs are not what they were before. We see what's happening in Europe. We see there's a global uh, economic downturn. So the sense that they really have no future is one that is very palpable for many of these young adults. And what about Hezbollah? How has Hezbollah played a role, or has it? Uh, Hezbollah has been very careful about how they react. They were silent for a bit when the demonstrations started. And then Hassan Nasrallah came out a couple of days ago and said, we're holding on to the government. Uh, there won't be a change and more or less hinted that they would also take to the streets and, and if they took to the streets, nobody would be happy. There have been uh, stories reported of thugs affiliated with the Amal movement and with Hezbollah attacking protesters in Beirut, but also in the south, especially in areas where protesters were being critical of both uh, Nabi Hibari, the Speaker of Parliament, and the head of the Amal movement, and Hassan Nasrallah, uh, the head of Hezbollah. But beyond that, they haven't figured in a very clear way. The concern, of course, is that uh, we don't know what the future holds. And should there be a collapse of government, the only two potential forces who can move, step in to uh, you know, fill the void are Hezbollah or the Lebanese army. At this point, Hezbollah is very clear in that it continues to back President Michel Aoun, he's their ally, and they continue to back, uh, in a very clear way, Prime Minister Hariri. And I don't think that's going to change. I don't think they really want to shake things up now. They'd rather keep things calm and keep their eye on the bigger regional game than to get bogged down in internal Lebanese politics. But if push comes to shove, I'm sure they're ready. Do you think there's something the government can do to address the grievances of the protesters in this economic environment? Resign. (laughs) I mean, that's the demand of the protesters. There's now some discussion of a possible cabinet reshuffle. I I fear it will be too late uh, by the time it is announced because the protesters have upped the ante. They're saying, we want you to resign. We want a new people we trust in power who we know will implement this economic reform plan. The problem also is that even if a new government was put in place, unless there is a real broad political agreement amongst the political parties to allow this government to do its job, um, that won't happen. There'll be scapegoats for whatever disaster falls. Beyond that, I don't know what the current government can do beyond resign. Uh, They need to show that they're very serious about implementing. Uh, There needs to be more consistent conversations with the protesters. I honestly don't know what they can do in such a short time frame to win the trust of protesters. What you hear from protesters is we've waited on them for three years, and for three years they've done nothing. On the contrary, the country has just been going backwards, and our lives have been getting worse. So what do you think is to come? I mean, do you see any kind of model that you could see Lebanon moving towards? I think there are different options. Um, One option, which is... I believe at this point is very unlikely, would be the Sudan scenario where you would have a military slash civil government take place. But I think that's a very far-fetched and unlikely scenario at at this current moment. But this is the Middle East. Things change very quickly, as you know. Um, The other scenario is what they're now discussing, which is a complete, uh, either a partial or a complete cabinet reshuffle under the current prime minister. 
This would be in part to avoid having to go through a, you know, if the prime minister were to resign, they'd have to go through parliamentary consultations and agree on a new prime minister who would be named by all the political parties. So this kind of opens the door for a power vacuum. So one possible way to deal with this is that this current government resigns. I'm not sure whether the prime minister would stay in power and then a new government would be formed. That also, I'm not sure, would happen because this needs all the political parties to agree to. A third scenario is if this current uh, government uh, collapses, is we enter into a complete unknown, a power vacuum that uh, then someone has to fill. Maybe the Lebanese army will step in at that point uh, and they do a small government and run the affairs of the country. Does that run a risk of repression then? I mean, my concern is that the moment people are off the streets, there will be a risk of repression. We've already seen over the past year, two years, there's been an increasing clampdown on freedom of expression. Anybody who criticizes the president uh, or anyone else, I think this year 38 people were thrown in jail uh, because of offenses related to free speech, journalists on social media uh, and other places. So my concern is that irrespective of what comes next, we may see things like this uh, happening and we need to keep our eye on it. We may see increasing violence on the street in order to push protesters. Uh, Already the protesters are being vilified. There have been attacks uh, by adherents to the different political parties. Today, supporters of President Aoun came out in different places. Yesterday, uh, they attacked protesters in an area called uh, Deir Yashua. So the potential of violence at different scales is very possible in the coming few weeks. We have to wait and see, honestly. The last scenario, which I think is not a favored one, but it's also an option, and I've heard talk of this, is that, okay, the current government resigns and then they appoint a prime minister who is uh, very close to uh, Hezbollah with a smaller government that is also would be very close to them. But again, I don't think Hezbollah themselves want that kind of scenario because they wouldn't want to carry responsibility for the country. Maha, when you walk through the streets, when you get up in the morning, when, you are, when you're on your way to work, how do you maneuver through the city with all those people in the street? Uh, well, we haven't been able to get to work for the, for the past week. Uh, our offices are smack in the middle of the demonstrations. But just walking through Beirut or even driving through Beirut, on, the, on my way home now, I, I had an appointment, I was coming back. All of a sudden, there was a roadblock. And I had to uh, you know, drive around it, find another way to get home. This is the reality of our lives today. Uh, sudden roadblocks that crop up everywhere. There was the video that went viral of a bunch of protesters singing Baby Shark to a toddler. Yeah, exactly. So there is this sense of excitement and of uh, we're doing something, you know, the the people have been so frustrated for such a long time. uh, And this sense of helplessness that they're not able to make a difference in their own lives and in their country. So I think the surge of energy is partly as a result of this, is people are very invigorated. They feel finally they can take some control back and that they can make a difference, irrespective of whether we think it's positive or negative. It doesn't matter. The bottom line is they feel that they can take some action and they can voice their frustration. 
one of the young protesters said to me, you know, but we're not burning tires. I, you know, he's, he was happy that, look, you know, we're not burning tires anymore. We know it's bad for the environment and bad for the health. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, it's for, for him, it was a step forward, which is fine. It's a great step forward. I'd rather not have to deal with burning tires. So I'm hopeful about the positive energy I see. I'm very unclear about what's next and very worried about the prospects of what's next. But to echo what's being said in the streets, for many people, the unknown is better than what we have right now. You know, when people reach the point where they tell you, we'd rather risk a power vacuum, we'd rather risk the unknown than remain in the situation we're in, that already tells you how deep and how profound the frustration is. Even if you look at the statistics, I, I just did a Twitter feed, if you want to look at it, in some of the areas where these uh, demonstrations have been happening, in Tripoli, for example, the number of children who are out of school, uh, unemployment levels, I mean, almost 51% of people who live in Tripoli live below the poverty line, which is $4 a day. Um, so at Nabatiye, you have, I think, 13% unemployment rate. So... The situation is bad across the board. Child labor in places like Akkar is significant. We're talking about children between 7 and 15. So these are kids who are not in school. So there are real fundamental challenges, particularly when you move out of the cities as well. Maha, thank you so much for joining us today. A pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Sarah. That was Maha Yaya, director of the Carnegie Middle East Center in Beirut. Here's that clip of protesters singing Baby Shark. First Person is produced by me, Sarah Wildman, along with Benjamin Soloway and Anise Modi. Our editors, Rob Sachs, and our executive editor for news and podcasts is Dan Efron. If you like this episode, please tweet about it. Tell your friends and please subscribe.